on this first Sunday of Lent, we're moving into the next part of our journey through the Gospel of John. We're going to continue to um, consider a queer lens and utilize queer theology, but as we begin to move into the beginning of our renewal exercises that are a part of the, the grant that we've gotten, actually Melissa is like on her first renewal activity this weekend. She's doing her Sankofa journey, and so um, I got one text message from her so far on Thursday night. This is amazing! And so I'm sure we are going to hear all about it. But um, as we go into our renewal exercises, we're going to start to look at the text as opportunities to consider how we might compost our collective traumas, um, creating a garden bed suitable for the beauty it may create. Melissa mentioned this last week, um, and that moving forward, growing fruit um, as a family is going to first require some possibly messy work. And transparently, I feel a little afraid of that. I talked about this a little bit um, when Alyssa was with us a few weeks ago. I'm sorry, I'm going to back up. I forgot to do a visual description. My name is Brittany. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. I am a white, cisgendered, blonde woman. I'm wearing a black t-shirt and jeans today. Sorry, okay. Um, a few weeks ago, when Alyssa was here, we were talking about big feelings and what it might feel like for, for the people leading this time, um, this, these renewal exercises. And I mentioned, I'm a little afraid. It's hard, like composting is, I assume. I've never done it. Because um, gross, <laughs> I want to. Um, yeah, but I have a garden, but it's not a great one. Okay, that's enough. Um, <laughs> as we've attempted to follow the spirit where it wills with our family in the last several years, it does feel like the time to step into this hard space, though. It feels like, like I mentioned a few weeks ago, stepping off of the edge, taking the risk of falling with faith that we might fly. I shared with my book club this week um, that I don't know exactly what's going to happen, and that feels weird. Um, because um, my co-pastor is Melissa, the most prepared person on the planet. Um, and so not knowing what's going to happen never happens. <laughs> um, I don't know what's going to come up for us, what individually and collectively we will, um, we will process. We each bring so much to this space and this community, and having our own stories tangled together with the roots of each other and our attempt to create a fertile space will be um, a just constant practice of unknown. It could be messy. It will probably be messy. We will misstep. We might tumble over old and knotted roots in our way, but we have to find them to be able to know where to sow our seeds later on. May this work be healing and productive for us. As I was reading today's passage, I kept thinking of something I've told my patients um, there are new faces. I am a, a mental health therapist during the week. Um, I, told, I tell my patients in the past about group therapy processing. When I initially started my program to study therapy, I was most nervous about the group therapy part, to be a participant, which is required when you're studying therapy, and also to be a facilitator. But what I realized when getting started was there is some mysterious and beautiful piece that, that made me really like it <laughs> in the end. And the best way I can describe it is that when we have been through some sort of trauma or grief, we wouldn't wish that experience on anyone in the world. But, we're in a, but when we are in a place where we learn that others have been through it or have an empathetic gift, 
We experienced a sense of belonging that was stolen from us initially because of that loss. And in Lent, we are walking towards a trauma, a traumatic experience. And in today's passage, I really believe Jesus is modeling some of that processing for us, doing some anticipatory healing work, knowing what is coming. He knows it's his time, and he's going to be shaped, it's going to be shaped by betrayal even, but rather than rail against what seems to be inevitable, he creates an experience for himself and his loved ones that starts the healing process. If you'd like, you can turn to our um, familiar story today in John chapter 13. I will be reading from the First Nations version, um, but you can read from any version you'd like. If you don't have a First Nations version and you'd like to use it, there's several over there. Um, we're going to read verses 1 through 30. The Passover festival was drawing near. Creator sets free, knew it was time to leave this world and go back to his father. His love for the ones who walked the road with him had always been great, and now at the end, his love for them remained strong. The evil trickster snake had already twisted the heart of speaks well of, who is Judas, also known as village man, Iscariot, son of man who hears, Simon, to betray, creator sets free. Creator sets free, knew that his father had put all things in his hands and that he had come from the great spirit and was returning to him. Knowing all of this during the meal, Creator sets free, got up from the table, took off his outer garments and wrapped a cloth around himself like a sash. He poured water into a vessel and one by one he began to wash the feet of his followers and dry them with the cloth. There's a note here for us. Um, this was a task reserved for only the lowest servants of the household. He came to stand on the rock, Peter, and said to him, who said to him, wisdom keeper, are you going to wash my feet? You do not understand now what I'm doing, but later you will, he answered. No, stands on the rock, lifted his voice. This can never be. Creator sets free, looked deep into his eyes and said, if you refuse this, then you have no part in who I am. Wisdom keeper, he answered back, if this is so, then wash my hands and head also. Creator sets free, replied, if you have already had a bath, only your feet need washing. <laughs> I don't know why that is so funny to me, but it feels like, like a child, like a, a parent with a child, which is also beautiful. And then you will be clean all over. Now you are all clean except for one. He said this because he knew who would betray him. After he had finished washing all their feet, he put his outer garment back on and sat down at the again at the table. Do you see what I've done? He said to them. You're right to call me wisdom keeper and chief because I am. If I, your wisdom keeper and chief, have washed your feet, then you should wash each other's feet. So follow my footsteps and do for each other what I have done for you. I speak from my heart. The one who serves is not greater than the one who is served. A message bearer is not greater than the one who sent him. If you walk in this way of blessing, you will do well, and, I will, and it will return to you full circle. I'm not talking about all of you, for I know the hearts of the ones I have chosen. Now you will see the full meaning of the sacred teachings that said, the one who ate with me has turned against me. I'm telling you this ahead of time, so when it happens, you will believe that I am the chosen one. I speak from my heart. 
The one who welcomes the one I send welcomes me. The one who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. When he finished saying this, creator sets free, became deeply troubled in his spirit. As sorrow moved over his face, he said to all, from my heart I tell you, one of you will turn against, my, against me. His followers' hearts fell to the ground. They looked around to each other, wondering who would do such a thing. He shows goodwill, who is John, the much-loved follower of Creator Sets Free, is sitting next to him, was sitting next to him, stands on the rock, motioned him to ask Creator Sets Free who it was, so he leaned back on his chest and whispered into his ear, Wisdom Keeper, who is it? When I dip my fry bread into the dish, he whispered back, I will give it to the one who will turn against me. He did as he said and handed the fry bread to Speaks Well of, also known as Village Man and Son of Man Who Hears. When Speaks Well of took the fry bread, the evil snake took hold of his heart. Go now, Creator Sets Free said to him, and do what you've planned. None of the others understood what Creator Sets Free was saying to him. Since he was the keeper of the money pouch, they thought he was going to pay for the ceremonial meal or give something to the poor. As soon as he had taken the fry bread, speaks well of, got up from the table and went out into the night. This is the word of the Lord. This is such an interesting um, and, and really beautiful passage. One that historically we've been pretty easily able to interpret. Um, Jesus cares for his disciples by washing their feet. This is an inspiring moment where Jesus models loving his neighbor, his friends, as himself. And I don't think anyone across different theological positions would disagree much with this. But there's so much more here. This is just a lot, that's just like a line drawing, and there is color to be filled in when we really take a moment to see what is happening throughout the entire scene. So let's start at the beginning. I love the way the First Nations passage describes um, this moment for Jesus. His love for the ones he had walked the road with had always been great, and now at the end, his love for them remained strong. Disciples, the title for the, the folks that are walking with Jesus, is a strong word. It has a specific connotation. But in this passage, Jesus is with the ones he loves. Disciples gets used to describe them later, but in this moment, it's the ones that he loves, his friends, not just followers of his teachings. This is an important example for us, I think, in, who live in Western society that value and uphold monogamous partnerships as the most, even perhaps only, valuable, loving relationship. I really wanted to use this stand, and it's not working out as well as I hoped. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably my fault. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, friend. Christian culture for a long time has idolized courting and dating as our greatest calling as Christians, and yet here Jesus moves toward the end of his life, unpartnered, but still in love. The root word in this scripture is agape. Probably many of us have like, been really familiar with that word if we went to a Christian college or went to church in college, because it's like the big word, you know. Um, many of us, sorry, the text doesn't use Philia, or brotherly love, which many might think is more appropriate for these type of relationships. This might seem strange for folks that have easily been able to move through life and fulfill the spoken and unspoken expectations of Western culture and modernity of romance. But for those of us that haven't had as easy of a time of it, for a number of reasons, the relationships that Jesus models here make a lot of sense. When the loving relationship that you desire to be in isn't accessible because maybe it's illegal, or considered shameful, other relationships fill that void. 
Queer communities have been forming and living in loving family relationships forever. When a young person loses their family after coming out, they are scooped up by their community and loved in the highest agape form, in a way that those that abandon them could never know because they know they won't know the person as the fullest version of themselves. And this doesn't mean our partners are not important. I am a newlywed. I would never suggest that. <laughs> but it does mean that there is deep and astounding and divine love that lives in our relationships outside of our partners. This is the first verse of this passage, y'all. There is a lot here. <laughs> it's during this meal that the queer Jesus really shows up, though. In the middle of this ceremonial meal, Jesus gets up and takes off his clothes. <laughs> he uncovers himself. He then covers himself with a towel and prepares materials to wash the feet of his friends. And his friends are very confused. What the hell is this guy doing? And as usual, it is the exact opposite of what he would have been expected to do. First, Jesus leaves the comfort of a meal with his family. Feeding my family and my friends is my absolute favorite thing to do in the world. It is just like, it just fills me up in such a special way. And Jesus is like, hold on, goodbye. You know, he walks away from this really important thing. And it wasn't work that he goes to do that is required of him or required of the festivities, actually, in the first place. He says later, like, you've had a bath. You're actually okay. His, an interruption of the activity at hand draws attention to the importance of what he's going to do. He's sharing a meal with those that he loves in the highest form, and he stops to do something else. He might as well be screaming, pay attention to me. And the thing that he does wasn't his to do. Jesus gives a big middle finger to gender and class roles and expectations here for those roles. The text says that, his, that this job was usually reserved for the lowly servant. And servant is actually probably not super correct. Uh, many scholars agree that it wasn't just any servant that would do this task. It was the lowliest or even a slave. Others say that this would have been done by only even female slaves. If no slave were present, it would have been a female in the household. Jesus participates in women's work here. It would have been degrading for him to do this act, unmanly. But he does it anyway, and he does it intimately. Theologian Robert Goss focuses on the intimacy of this passage, even the eroticism of it, by reminding us that uncovering the feet was actually a Hebrew euphemism for uncovering the bottom half of our body for sexual intimacy. He recalls the story of Ruth and Boaz, where the phrase is used to mean just that in Ruth chapter 3. Her mother tells her, wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know that you are there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He'll tell you what to do. This isn't to suggest that Jesus is doing anything inappropriate with his friends here. Rather, Goss calls us to consider this as a symbolic action of washing the feet, as Jesus' symbolic purification of human genitals and purity of human sexuality in any form. And I think it's interesting to consider how the church has considered sexuality to be so taboo for so long and responds similarly to the way Peter responds to Jesus in this passage. No, this can never be! 
But for those of us that have always known our sexuality is good, but have never had it affirmed, seeing Jesus bless human sexuality in this passage can be incredibly healing. Peter's not the only one that objects to Jesus here, though. All of them are confused, everyone present. And Jesus says, hold on, I'll tell you what's going on. He says, do you see what I have done? You're right to call me wisdom keeper and chief, because I am. If I, your wisdom keeper and chief, have washed your feet, then you should wash each other's feet. So follow my footsteps and do for each other what I have done for you. Jesus is making their roles for when he's gone clear. He makes a point to drop the title they've given him, which is pretty important. Wisdom keeper, chief, these important roles, these leadership roles, roles that should have been having their feet washed not the other way around. But Jesus continues to break down those roles alongside of the class and gender one. That of the leader. Robert Goss says again, it disrupts gender and class hierarchies and it communicates a notion that leadership does not belong to itself, but to the community. Jesus exemplifies his, to his disciples what leadership is. His body belongs to the community. His symbolic action is egalitarian, not hierarchical, it is humbly and lowly service to the community of disciples. As the story continues, I find it really interesting that Jesus performs this foot washing with Judas present. He doesn't get sent away until after the ceremony, which I find strange. Jesus does comment before the ceremony gets start, started that he knows one of his disciples did not, will not be clean, but he doesn't openly shame Judas. He knows what is to come, and rather than risk Judas's safety in that moment, he includes him in the way he honors his other loved ones, suggesting that he too loves Judas. He makes a choice to work towards not letting the trauma of what will happen to him shape his experience in that moment. He chooses loving and being loved. And I felt so grateful that this passage aligned with our first week of this composting theme. Because in this passage, it feels to me that Jesus is modeling the importance of loving community when engaging with your own trauma work. When I start working with someone that has trauma, we don't just dive in. We work on our relationship first as therapist and patient. We make sure that our relationship is one that can hold all of what is going to come up together that they trust me and are aware and sure of my care for them. If we didn't do that work, there would be a lot of risk in exploring trauma together. They, like Jesus, are at this time in their lives where they are making the difficult choice to no longer let the trauma that they have experienced or the grief they have experienced control them. And even though it sounds easy, like they're just making a choice and they go with it, it's not. It's hard and messy and it absolutely has to be done in relationship. Composting, turning over the dirt and muck of our hurt, shakes us up. It shakes up those around us, but in doing that work in community, alongside those that we love and those that love us, we create a safer place for, most, for, the, for our most vulnerable and authentic selves to show up. Jesus is walking towards his own death. It's like, I don't even, like, trauma doesn't even feel like a big enough word. Even if he doesn't know the hows of what will happen, he knows the what, and he knows what it will likely do to the ones he loves so much 
And so with his time running out, he chooses to spend it caring for them in this unique and transgressive, really intimate way. When it feels like the thing that would make the most sense would be to go away somewhere, to hide, to deny what's coming. Instead, he joins together, loves the ones he has always loved. Perhaps we can even imagine tears falling from his eyes, mixing with the water he's using to wash his closest friend's feet. This is a a side note that I um, thought of when I was listening to Melissa's. I was with kids last week, so I didn't get to hear Melissa's sermon in person. But when I was listening to it afterwards, and she was talking about weeping, and I, I thought of it during this passage too, because I couldn't imagine Jesus not crying, you know, during this this passage. Um, there's this really interesting thing that we know about tears that I learned in grad school because I um, I did my my final project on interrelational therapy, um, which like essentially is just that like the relationship between the therapist and the patient is what facilitates healing. It doesn't matter what tools you use, like you could use whatever you want, CBT, psychoanalysis, whatever. But the relationship is what facilitates healing, which I think is divine in a lot of ways sacred. Tears are this really interesting thing. So like when you're like chopping an onion or like have an irritant in your eye, the tears that come have like a really low viscosity. And like viscosity, uh, go back to middle school science, is like the thickness of the, the liquid. So like oil has a higher viscosity than water. But like an irritant tear is just like really watery, really thin. You wipe it away really easily. But tears that are created from places of pain, whether emotional, physical, or mental, have a a higher viscosity. So they stick to your face. They create like tracks, you know? And we think that is because it is our bodies have created a moment to call out to other people even if we don't have the voice to do so. So if I'm crying and Brenda sees me crying, she automatically makes an inference like, Brittany needs help. And so, like, my body is asking for help even if I can't use the words. I just think that is, like, the most beautiful, like, bodily response. That has nothing to do with what... (laughs) Or maybe it has everything to do with it, right? Like, Jesus, like, even if he doesn't have the words in this moment, is crying with the people that he loves the most. Hmm. The story feels familiar for more reasons than just we've heard it a million times. It felt familiar to me in the ways that our little family here at Trinity has moved forward. Not with the same certainty that Jesus had about his fate and what was going to happen, and thankfully not the same ending, but with the faith that God was and has always been present with us and where we were going. And I I just want to end by inviting us to follow his particular model here. Like I said, I don't know what this next season is going to look like for us, and that is so weird and scary. But I think we have created this very beautiful space together that we can trust the community that has become a family We can step into the hard and even scary moments to care for each other while also allowing ourselves to be cared for, to hold and be held, to wash each other's feet and allow our feet to be washed even. 
and as we begin to till the earth in this season of composting, as soon as next week when Alyssa comes to visit us, I pray that it is so. And that even if tears fall, we know that it's just our body saying this is the right place for that to happen. And we're with people that will use cloths to, to wash them up for us just like Jesus does in this passage. Amen.